Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. This episode, we're joined by Danielle Rowe. She is a freelance photographer and storyteller whose passion is to detail the stories of individuals and their life experiences, particularly uh, those of African Americans. And uh, Danielle, thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. And I, I got a chance to talk to you and get to know you a little bit in the last week or so. So, I, But I want, uh, if you could, can you give me, uh, you know, explain your background and how you came uh, to to me and then uh, the project you were trying to get underway. Yeah, so I'm born and raised here in Utah, Utah County specifically. Um, and my experiences I've had growing up here, I always thought I wouldn't live in Utah uh, forever, that I would move away. But I met my husband here and um, we both have family here and we now live in Salt Lake and have grown to love it. But one of the things um, that I have also um, grown to love is our community and the potential of our community. Um, and so I went on this journey of, um, you know, wanting to help people tell their stories and their experiences here. Um, and I went and did this photography project. I got um, a lot of positive feedback from people close to me. Um, and it was my boss at my job who recommended that I reach out to you. Um, she thought that this would be a piece that you would really like. And so Shout out to Linda, Linda Wardell. Yes, Linda Wardell, yes. And so I um, I did. I reached out to you. I, I think I maybe it felt like stalked you a little bit. <laughs> and I uh, found you on LinkedIn and, and wrote you and got through to you. So And I'm glad I did. Very glad. So, but like, uh, so you, you were uh, you born and raised here in Utah, but you were adopted. You uh, kind of uh, yes. talked to me about kind of your origin story. Yeah, so um, I was adopted just three days old, um, born in Provo. My birth mom is Caucasian and my... Um, birth dad is black. He's from New York. And um, back then adoptions had to be closed. So I didn't know really very much about them. Um, my birth mom left me with a letter and a little stuffed bear. And I, I really cherished those growing up. It kind of, I held tight to them. It was um, the only piece of little bit of, um, I guess, authentic identity, I could say that I had, um, just not really knowing where I came from. And Again, not at the fault of my birth mom or my adoptive mom, just that's just how it had to be back then. Um, so I, um, but I did really, really thirst for, for finding out where I came from. So you're 35, um, right? So yeah. what year was this? Um, what year was what? Oh, that you were I, born in uh, what year? I was born in 1985. Okay. okay. 
yeah. So um, I, when I, I knew when I turned, I think it was 18, I could submit a letter to the adoption agency and tell them that I wanted to meet my birth mom. And if she also submitted a letter, then they would connect us. So I did, um, but I was told that she didn't submit a letter. So I really wanted to find out who they were. So I took the little pieces of information I had, which my mom said that she faintly remembered she went to high school in Provo. Um, I went and looked back in archives of, of yearbooks from years. I couldn't find, I thought maybe if my mom saw her picture, her name, maybe she would recognize it. She didn't. Um, I knew my birth dad played basketball at what was then Utah Tech College, which is now UVU. Um, Utah Valley University. In yeah. And so I then, <laughs> so I, I kind of put it together. I was born in September, so I figure they were dating around New Year's. So I thought if he played basketball, he would have been on the team the year 84, 85. So I went and talked to the coach and I said, hey, um, I've been looking for newspaper archives. I've been looking for rosters, all these things. I can't find anything about this basketball team from this year. Do you have anything that could help me? And I told him, you know, who I was looking for, why I was looking for my birth dad. And surprisingly enough, he just went to his drawer and he just opened it and he pulled out a program from a game that year. Like he just had it right there. I don't <laughs> know why, but he did. And I opened it and I thought this is going to be so easy. He's probably going to be the only black guy on the team. Um, but there was four. So <laughs> I didn't really know, you know, I kind of just, I knew I wore glasses. Um, and so I picked the guy who had glasses okay. <laughs> and um, I wrote a letter so, well, so then I went online and I Googled his name and I got one of those um, people look up things that say, if you pay like right, right. 99 cents, we'll give you all the addresses. And there was four and I knew that he was from New York. So I picked the New York addresses. I emailed or I let, I sent a letter out and then um, I had the return address be a PO box just in case, you know, some creepy person got the letter. Um, and then months later I got an email back saying, Hey, I, I think I'm your uncle. And I found my birth dad that way. <laughs> so I, I'm wondering what it's like to send off a message like that and wait, like just take us through the emotions of that. <laughs> oh man, that's, it's a journey. <laughs> um, I kind of thought at that point, I, I hadn't really had any other leads. So I thought I have really nothing to lose. Um, and so I tried to not get my hopes up too much and, and get too excited. I just kind of took it really step by step. I just really focused on this is what I'm doing now. And um, I'm going to send these letters out and then I'm going to try my best to just forget about it. And I'm not going to think about it. So I went, you know, hard into school and my life and just tried to do everything I could knowing that I sent a letter out. If I don't get anything back, then I just figure out the next step. Like I tried to stay really focused in the moment. Um, and then I was actually dating a guy named Darren at the time. And my birth dad's name is Darren. And so I was on the phone with my boyfriend and I got the message saying, Hey, I might be your uncle. I'm Darren's cousin. And I said, Hey, do you have a cousin named, you know, his name? And he said, no, I, I don't. And I, it took me like five to 10 minutes of grilling him to figure this out. And then I was like, Oh my gosh, I think that's my birth dad. And I hung up with him immediately and replied to this guy. And turns out that it was my birth dad. It was my what, uncle, my birth uncle. What was your expectation when you're trying to contact your dad? What did you hope what were you hoping for? Um, oh, I will. Oh, that's a good question. I would say, um, I really, at the end of the day, I was really, I was hoping that I would find him. But the reason being is because I wanted to know my, my history, my genealogical history. 
And so um, that really was the main point of it. I didn't feel like I was missing anything in my life as far as like a father figure or love or family. I wasn't missing any of that. Um, I had all of that. It was just the simple fact of wanting to know where I came from. And so um, I was hoping that if, you know, at the very least, if he wasn't going to have a relationship with me or talk to me that I would at least get confirmation that that was him so that I could go down the road of, you know, finding my genealogical history, just finding out where I came from. So did, uh, were you fortunate enough to be able to kind of forge a relationship with him or what's that been like? Yeah. Um, I was, I, my, um, my dad went with me, my adopted dad out to New York so that I could meet him. Um, and I did meet him and, and all my birth family on that side. Um, we don't have a relationship now because of just how things have transpired in between then and now. Um, and I'm, I'm very happy with, with that. I, I may, I feel like I've made the right decision, but, um, but I do have a relationship with my birth brother who, um, I do care for, and he has been a really great support for me. And, um, as some of the other birth family as well. So um, while my relationship with my birth dad didn't work out, I am so grateful that I've got to meet other members of my birth family. Mm-hmm. And I am grateful because um, I have, a, I guess, a hole that's been filled of, you know, people who look like me, people who, you know, have the same blood as me, you know, that, that type of a thing. Well, explain to people, I have a sister who's adopted, so I just... I'd love to just know, like, what it was like for you to to just make some of those connections, to find out what grandparents you had or, you know, where they came from or what they did for jobs, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't think people understand how meaningful those connections are when you don't have them. Yeah, um, it was, it was really important for me. um, And it was, it was, it was more of like, I I was really grateful. It was, it was a moment of gratitude. um, I know that I've always known that I was placed, um, you know, with the family that I was meant to be with, but just having that confirmation of where you come from was just almost like a weight's been lifted off your shoulder, like a breath of fresh air. Um, just a little bit more of a feeling of belonging and acceptance in a way, um, just into a culture, um, because I grew up with a white family and having a black family as well, just kind of helped confirm a little bit of, you know, who I felt like I was. When we come back, I want to uh, talk a little bit more about your background, but I also want to uh, talk about the project that uh, you've undertaken and uh, explain this project and how it actually uh, developed and, and what you hope to accomplish with it. We're speaking today with Danielle Rowe. She's a freelance photographer and storyteller whose passion is uh, detailing the stories of individuals like herself and their life, life experiences, particularly uh, being African-American in Utah and as it relates to being in a majority uh, white culture. With Amy Donaldson, I'm Jason Lee. This is Voices of Reason. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind 
only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. We are back with the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason, Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today speaking with Danielle Rowe, a freelance photographer and storyteller uh, who was born and raised in Utah. And one of the things that uh, is interesting about that story is she's African-American. Her, her dad was black and her mom was Caucasian. And, but she was adopted by a white family. And certainly you, you grow up with a sense of family. But uh, growing up in Utah County, and for those who are not from Utah, it is extra white is the best way I can describe it. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. With Utah is one one and a half percent black. It's half that in Utah County. So you you were almost always the only black person in the circle of uh, that wherever you were. Is that right? Yeah, that is very true. <laughs> so what was uh what was it like being in, in that experience? Uh, you know, during your childhood and and growing up to uh, through your adolescence. Um, I the best way I can put it is. It was challenging um, and it was lonely. I, um, I just, when I look back and I think, I just keep seeing myself trying so hard to fit in um, in regard to aspects that don't, that I'm not able to fit into. I don't have the same hair. Um, I have a very different um, structure to my body, um, you know, which are cultural things. And, um, but I didn't have anything other than MTV you know, to really reference any other black people. Um, I had an older sister who was also adopted, um, but growing up, we just weren't very close. Um, and so, and, you and know, she, too, right? she is. Yeah. Um, and so it was just, it was just hard. It was really hard um, to feel like I fit in. And, you know, as a teenager in whatever regard you're trying to go through, you always want to fit in, you know, you want friends, you want to fit in with a crowd and a group. And I did have, I did have some friends. I mean, I, I wasn't completely alone, but, um, even with those friends in my mind, I just always felt like the odd man out. And I hated that feeling. And so what is it like when you start trying to date and go get a job and go to school? What, what, what's your life like? Um, well, I didn't, um, I didn't go on my first date until, um, I moved away when I went to, I went to school at Utah Valley University, but then I transferred to Hawaii for a year is when I went on my first real date. Um, I didn't get invited to any dances. Um, there was a kid who my neighbor, um, felt bad that I never got invited to any dances. And she knew this kid that lived way up in Ogden and she, like, it was like, the night before and she was like would you want to take her and he said yeah and so it, it kind of like came about that way but I was never like asked to a dance I never you know all my friends were getting these elaborate like question like ways of being asked to a dance and I, I never got to really experience that um, I did ask a kid to a dance um, and he did go with me but then when we got there he told me he came with me so that he could go see another girl <laughs> so um, you know and I don't know if that was a racial thing or not. I'm just saying that that's what had happened and it hurt. Um, but it was, it was difficult. It, I felt unpretty. I felt, um, you know, left out. I felt like there was something wrong with me. 
Um, but there wasn't, there wasn't anything wrong with me, but, um, but that's just how I felt because I kept thinking, well, why, why do all these people keep getting asked to dances and getting asked on dates and all these people are having these normal high school experiences and I don't get to have any of that. You mentioned to me that uh, one of the things that was, it was, so this kind of isolation happened in, when you were in school, when you went to church and you were, of, at the time you were of the prevailing uh, religion, yeah. uh, Mormonism. And, and so it, it, that too was surprising to me. And then again, your experience dating because you didn't look like, you know, the typical people that were, who were around there. Yeah, I, um, the religion part was hard for me. It was what everyone did. Um, so you just, for me, was just kind of doing what everyone did. It was a place where I did have some friends in my ward, which was my neighborhood, um, the people who went to the same church as me. So I did have some friends. And so when I would go, you know, it would be like hanging out with them. But then I still had that kind of nagging feeling inside me that it just like I just didn't belong um, plus two in the Mormon church I didn't see a lot of um, black people outside you know when we'd have like general conference and things like that there was like the one black guy in the choir um, you know and it was always like made a big deal a little bit about like there's that one black guy oh we're so inclusive because we have the one black guy um, but my mom saw that and she could tell you know that I needed that and she got me um, involved with Genesis, which is a group of um, members of the LDS church that are black. And she took me to some of those, um, she took me to some of those um, meetings that they had. And um, I, I do remember that was like the first feeling of like, um, wow, like I feel accepted. I feel like I belong. I didn't feel like an outcast. I felt energized. And it wasn't necessarily because it was black people that were Mormon. It was just being around black people. It was just seeing other people who look like me, who have similar features to me, who have braids or, you know, weaves. And, and it's just like normal for them. And that was such a relief for me. I felt so good about that. So I kept, you know, going to activities they had and meetings they had um, because I felt so, um, accepted there but the religion piece was still just a little bit of an issue for me because I still was my heart wasn't a hundred percent into the religion but I just liked being connected with those people so tell us a little bit about your project and how that came about um so I um I feel really passionate about the experiences that I've been through and I feel really passionate about Utah I feel like Utah is a really great place that um, people can thrive so I wanted to do this project because I felt like if I can find a way um, to express um, these adversities that black people face in Utah and to tell these people's stories in a way that's um, positive to Utah, then I think more people will be more receptive to hear it. And I wanted it to do in a way that I feel like people felt inspired and I feel like imagery is always really inspiring for people. So I wanted to capture, um, I got a list of people with um, the help of my sister-in-law who was really um, she was a really important piece to this all coming together. And we went, you know, she helped me set up all these interviews with these people and went and we t I took all their pictures and I made them choose a place that they felt represents them, a place that, um, you know, when they take the picture, it looks like this is them and, um, and told their story. And um, it's been very well received. I, I really wanted to give these people a platform to speak about their um, experiences without feeling like people are discrediting them or not listening to them. And these are people who are longtime Utahns, right? 
yeah, so they had to have lived in Utah for 20 or more years. Um, it was important for me to have people that have seen Utah go from under 1% black people to 1.5%, which is a small change, but for people who have lived here that long, this, it's a huge improvement. <laughs> Well, and I, I think, talk about the ways it is an improvement. What kind of difference does a half percent of more population, what, is that, what does that mean in jobs and church and, you know, friendships? Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing is just the fact that we are seeing more black people in everyday places that we go brings a level of comfort and, um, and excitement. Like you, you're seeing... Um, the diversity population grow. And that means so much. I remember me and my husband were, um, we live in Murray now, and I think we were in Sandy or somewhere in this area at um, at a store. And we saw like three or four black people while we were there. We were so excited. <laughs> we were just like, oh my gosh, like are black people moving here? This is a thing. This is really happening. Counting like, the black people in <sighs> when you're going out, it's, it's a thing. It's true. It's a total <laughs> thing. Yeah, it is. And, you know, back in before, you know, I would say before six years ago, the term, you know, all black people know each other was offensive. But in Utah, it was true. Very true. Yeah. We, we knew all black people um, by one way or another. And now we're, our community is growing and it's exciting. It's exciting to see people move here and love it and stay here, um, raise their families here. It's um, diversifying the schools, which is making our kids feel less ostracized. Um, it's diversifying the workplace that, you know, makes you feel like you have an ally and a friend where you're working. Um, and, it, and it boosts your confidence. It makes you feel um, uh, proud and excited and happy. It really makes a huge difference. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, some of the workplace inspiration you mentioned and also about, you, you asked everybody six questions, and I wanted to kind of get a sense of how you came up with that. And also some of the racial issues that still exist that, uh, you know, hopefully this will create a conversation that can uh, move that uh, forward and so we can make this community more communal. Uh, we're speaking today with Danielle Rowe, freelance photographer and storyteller, and she talks about her life experience and, and those of other African-American people who are longtime Utahns. Along with Amy Donaldson, I'm Jason Lee. This is Voices of Reason. back with Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee. She's Amy Donaldson. And we're speaking today with Danielle Rowe. She lives, born and raised in Utah, and she has uh, embarked on a project to talk about her life journey and those of other Utah, uh, African-American Utahns who've been here at least uh, 15, 20 years and what their experience has been like and, and what, what they've seen over those two, two decades. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about how you, you used your workplace experience as kind of the inspiration for developing this project and, and, and you asked specifically, uh, as part of this project, you asked everybody the same six questions to kind of get a sense of uh, what they've experienced during uh, their lifetimes. Yeah, I, um, coming up with those questions was hard. I, I really wanted to have a really positive piece to it. Um, but then I also really wanted people to feel like they had a platform to really speak about the things that bother them. Um, and the positive piece to it was um, these people have lived in Utah, like you said, 15, 20 years, some of them longer than that. Mm -hmm. And um, so I asked them why they stay here, like what they love about it. Um, and I think that was really well received because um, not there wasn't a single person that said just because family's here. It, there was a real reason that they loved Utah. 
um, and that they stay here. And I think it's important to touch on that piece because every place you live has issues, but we all stay for a certain reason. And um, we've got a lot of work to do here in Utah, but there are still wonderful things to Utah. And I don't think that we should always just focus on, you know, the negative and what needs to be done. I also um, wanted to ask them about, you know, who they look up to as a leader. I thought that was an important question because I think who we look up to as a leader really kind of gives a good picture of who we are and, you know, what life we live, how we approach things. Um, And then I really wanted to ask them how they feel that the Utah culture and the black community can connect on a positive level. Um, Because at the end of the day, that's what really everyone wants, right? So um, I think it was important for them to be able to voice what they think is a good way that, you know, we can achieve that here in Utah. I'm interested in this idea of um, talking to them about their favorite leaders. Was there anybody they mentioned that surprised you or that you didn't know anything about? Um, no. Okay. And they were all very different. They were all very different. Um, there was, um, well, actually, I guess one guy said um, LeBron James. And <laughs> I thought that I would hear more of that, actually. But um, yeah. I didn't. And he is... an a really exceptional person I think to look up to because of what he has done mm-hmm. he really for his community is. back People, home. Uh, yeah. Don't, don't he doesn't get enough credit for that. Is, right? Yeah. He does not get enough credit. So all. I was really happy to hear that, you know, that he was um, in that leadership role for somebody. Cause he is a community leader. I think people, they, Look at him as a basketball player, and that's all he is. And he is so much more than a basketball oh, player. He's so invested so much in education Absolutely. in Ohio. It's crazy. Yes. But, it's, um, the one thing I wondered if if you're um, if you're talking to them about uh, this idea of improving uh, relationships and connections, mm-hmm. like, did they have suggestions that you, you could share with other people? Or, I mean, like, how are those? Re- how are you receiving those? What are you thinking about those connections? Yeah, they did. Um, A lot of um, people, actually, almost every answer was very different, but a lot of them came from a place of there needs to be listening and understanding. Um, And so I I thought that was really powerful because there's a lot of yelling going on. There's a lot of um, loud talking going on. And I think that, yes, I understand why. And I was definitely one of those people. And I still am sometimes um, because, you know, after years of being frustrated, that's how you're going to react. But Mm -hmm. I think that it's also important to listen and come from a level of understanding instead of just defensiveness. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, I think there's a lot about the Utah culture and Utah um, that people need to listen to. But there's also a lot about the black culture in Utah and the black community that people need to listen to. Like, I think if we're going to come to a place of resolve and move forward, there has to be listening and understanding on both sides. And I was really happy that a lot of people said that. Uh, there was an answer that I really did like too, which um, uh, one of um, the participants said sports is a really good common ground. Um, and I thought that was really interesting because I don't think that's one that I would have thought of. But the way that, you know, he explained it made sense to me. You actually spoke to my barber, everybody's barber. So it's everybody's barber. Uh, he, <laughs> he, he is such a good guy. Uh, we haven't gotten that big yet, right? And he was one of, literally, he's one of the first people I met when I got here because back then I had hair. And I remember, uh, I, I asked a guy, because uh, I met a young man whose mom is white and his dad was black, and he told me where to go find somebody. Because uh, at the time, my wife was, you know, we, we come here, we didn't know anybody. Yeah. And one of the first things you do when you move to a new location is find somebody to, you know, hopefully do your hair. Yeah. And 
since then, I, we got to be friends. I, I would go to this place because if you've ever been to a black barbershop, you solve all the problems in the world, mm-hmm. everybody's friends, and you just, it's, it's this great kind of fellowship is what it is. I, I, yeah. I kind of use it. It's more than just a place to, you know, help yourself feel better about yourself, but you feel better about yourself the way you look, and you have some, some commonality almost always with some of the people who are there, and you get to talk about a lot of the same things that maybe you're experiencing, and then you find out you're not the only one. Yeah. It's very true. The barbershop is such an important piece to the black culture, and I don't think a lot of people here realize it. Um, they don't realize the place that it holds. My husband goes to Ramon, too, and has for years. Um, and it, my son, my four-year-old son, after he got his first haircut, I mean, he begs to go to the barbershop. He loves the barbershop. He loves being around the guys and the talking and the laughing, and it's just such a warm and welcoming and bright um, environment that um, I can tell is a really important place. Plus, too, I think my son can tell that he can f- he can really just be, you know, himself, his black self when he's there. And that it's, like, accepted and it's celebrated, you know, on a really positive level. And I think that's really important, especially in a place where, you know, black people are so far and few. Well, and I think it's important to understand that there's not that many places that he can go or that anyone can go and do that. Jason can't. Yeah just go to his favorite restaurant or whatever it's right. There's always some, um, code switching or, mm-hmm. you know, you have to moderate yeah. your behavior in a way you have to remember you're not, Absolutely. you just can't be free. And I don't think right. white people really get that. They don't, um, because they've never had to live it. So I, yeah. I understand why it's hard for them to understand, you know, to get that. But my, mm-hmm. um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, both me and my husband at work have had to, I I guess, censor ourselves is the best way to put it. Um, but we've had to alter our personalities to, um, make sure, you know, that we're not perceived a a certain way. Like I can't get loud and mad while my other coworkers maybe could. Um, but if, and, and I'm not talking about my current job, but in the past it's, it's Mm -hmm. been perceived as aggressive and, um, you know, the mad black woman, Mm -hmm. um, or in any situation, you know, at work, if I, if I'm frustrated about something, I have to be very, very careful about my approach, um, where I just don't feel like other races, you know, have had to do that. You know, I've had that same experience. You know, I remember once I had, uh, my deputy managing editor say to me, I was being hostile and I'm thinking to myself, this is in the same newsroom <laughs> as uh, our crime reporter who is cranky all the time and yeah. he gets away with behavior that, uh, and, and using the word hostile is... It's specific. It's right. Because now you can make it seem like I am creating this environment in this workplace when in actuality I was not. And I never had. Well, I was just going to say, Jason, compare your behavior to mine even, right? right? Like I can get away with a lot more, um, including swearing. Right. I can never swear in there. No. Yeah. Well, as an example, my, I mean, even for kids, my, um, my eight year old stepson was called the N word at school last year. And, um, when my husband found out the school called him, my husband called me, I lost it. I had to go into my boss's office and say, like, I need to be in here because I don't want people to see how I'm going to react, but I, I couldn't handle it. It was so hard for me. My husband went to the school immediately and, um, Malik, our, um, eight, he was eight at the time was just sitting there and the, the school had not approached him at all. They didn't ask him how he was doing. They didn't console him. They didn't do anything. They were too busy consoling the kid who called him the N word because he was crying because he got in trouble. So all the while Malik is sitting there and he's feeling so 
disgusted and sad because we have, you know, prepared him for this as best as we could. We've talked to him about it. We've given him, you know, the talk. Um, and I was so heartbroken to know that he was just left alone after such a tragic thing had happened. That's like the worst thing you can do for a kid. And it took him months to fully get back to himself. I mean, he was depressed for a while after that happened. And, um, and it, as, as, a, as a parent, step-parent, it was so hard to see him go through that. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about um, just some of the issues people face and, and what could be done to kind of bridge this divide because it's, it's not hopeless. And, and, and as you know, as we get older, if we're willing to listen, and this is, what, this is the, the, uh, the reason we're doing this show, if you're willing to listen to each other, you can find that commonality you have and not let the differences uh, keep you so far apart that you never uh, have kind of uh, the positive relationships that you could possibly have, if you're willing uh, to make the sacrifice. Speaking today with uh, Danielle Rowe, a native Utah and storyteller, we are talking about just life in general being kind of the minority in, in Utah and, and what the life is like and, and how it can be positive. Uh, along with Amy Donaldson, I'm Jason Lee. This is Voices of Reason. Jason Lee and Amy Donaldson, this is the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. Today we are speaking with Danielle Rowe, a freelance photographer and storyteller who has embarked on a project to offer people an understanding of what it's like to be uh, black in Utah. And she has used this project in a way to create an understanding, uh, not just among uh, African Americans, but hopefully uh, people in the majority who may not be aware of some of the challenges faced by uh, people who are not you know, looking like everybody else and have the same life experiences. And so I, I wanted you to talk about, uh, again, kind of explain to us uh, the project and how you came about it and what you hope to accomplish with it as you as we move forward in, in the years to come. Yeah, so um, this project, this photography project was um, something that I really wanted to do to give a platform to black people that are from Utah to speak about the issues that they have faced here in Utah, to make it very real to people here in Utah. A lot of people think racism doesn't happen in Utah because we don't have a lot of black people, but it's actually quite the opposite, that because we don't have a lot of black people, we face a lot of it. And it's not as blatant as people may think. Um, a lot of it comes from ignorance. And I I wanted to address that and I wanted to hopefully find a way that we can come to a place and repair it. Um, I, I interviewed 22 people, um, asked them all the same questions, photographed them and um, shared everything quote by quote. It was all their words um, and what they had been through. And I'm hoping that this project um, reaches people on a level of understanding. I want, you know, particularly the white people here in Utah to see that we do have issues um, that were going on, are still going on, and are going to continue to go on if we don't make changes. Um, I'm a firm believer in change happening um, in our education, so I'm hoping that at least, um, or at especially parents are reading this and seeing that these people went through what they went through um, in school and that they can teach their kids to be champions for change and um, support the movement moving forward of not um, treating people poorly because of how they look. Can you give people a couple of suggestions? I know, um, so people are, a, there, there's a wide range of reactions you probably get, right? And some yeah. people are gonna embrace the project 
and other people will um, think that the solution is for them to ask the one black person they know to educate them on this experience. I mean, what would you suggest of white people who are concerned about how people who are not the predominant race or religion are treated and, and they want to, you know, make them feel welcome here and make them feel more included in the, and part of this, this is their culture too. They built this state just like everybody, you know, and anybody else did. So what would you suggest them that they do to try to, I don't know, advance things in a positive direction? Yeah, I, um, I think one of the best things that they can do is be an example to their children. If they see something um, that they know is racist happening to somebody, they need to do something about it. They need to show their kids that that's not okay. I think that's one of the big things they can do. And I think also teaching their kids to be, um, like I said, champions about the Mm -hmm. movement. So if they are at school and, um, you know, they see a kid being bullied to not just ignore it, but to go up and say, Hey, that's not okay. Like stand up for these kids. Um, Mm -hmm. I think I get a lot of parents asking me what they can do. Um, and how they can teach their kids better um, for things like this. And I think that that is honestly one of the most important ways. We don't want to necessarily come from a place of negativity. This is what's wrong in the world. This is so bad. This, While they need to learn about the true history of American history, they can learn it in a way that says, this is what happened. This is where our country was, but this is also where we can be. And this is how we're going to be a part of the change. Um, and I do want to also say, um, for those of you who are, um, wondering where you can see this project, it's on my Instagram account, um, Danielle Rowe Photography. Um, it's it's there. Um, all of the pictures are there. All of the questions, they can find it on my Instagram. Can you spell your name, Danielle, so that people have the correct? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. My first name is spelled D-A-N-I-E-L-L-E. Last name is spelled R-O-W-E, and then photography. You know, you mentioned to me also that... Uh... You know, you hope to do this as an annual thing, even though this year you just happened to start it uh, during Black History Month. Yeah. And because it's still, you and I both know this is a growing community. So there's more and more people yeah. like myself who now have been here 20 years, and there's there's a lot more people to talk to. Yeah. Uh, when you when you see, and this translates across any city. I mean, if you if you're anywhere in the country and you have a majority white space, these kinds of incidents, these kinds of experiences are happening to African Americans and other minorities in in, in a broad scale. What, uh, what can people learn about how to um, make places more welcoming? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I have gotten so many people messaging me, emailing me, saying this is exactly what my daughter, my friend, my sister's friend is going through or has gone through, and thank you for putting it out there. This is not a new thing, and this is not a, a small thing. This is happening, um, and it is race-related. A lot of people have been telling me, oh, well, uh, you know, I had red hair and I was bullied. It's not the same. <laughs> it's not the same. Um, it comes and, from and, a place... and, and, and let me say that that's not good either. We need it's to It's not. Be... It's part yeah. of the problem. Yeah. yeah. Like... And I mean, it comes from a place where this our culture has been suppressed for so long um, mm-hmm. and looked down in such a negative way. Um, but I think, you know, I, I think people like that, a lot of people, they just they believe what they believe and they're just they're not going to change. We need to focus on the people who really do want to help inspire change, because at the end of the day, I believe that there's a larger number of people that do want to see this country change and move forward in a positive direction than people that don't. You know, it's, it's this weird, this false equivalency that uh, white people try to have. And I, I, I hear it all the time. And I, I was watching Bill Maher recently and he had oh. Megan Kelly on and they were, you know, she was explaining how her, her family, who, uh, her kids go to a, you know, a very wealthy private school and they were having 
letters sent that she felt were kind of offensive. And I was thinking, here she is. It's the first time any adversity in her life has ever happened, and her, certainly for her children, who at the time was only eight years old. And she was trying to seem like this is, you know, a major problem, and uh, uh, trying to because it was uh, focused on, you know, how to, uh, African American issues. That somehow it's the same. And I've also had a friend of mine who uh, thought the same thing when she lived uh, in an area where she was the only white person, or one of the few, that she felt discrimination. But I, try, I always try to explain to her, that's an isolated incident. That isn't your life every day. And now yeah. you're, you're trying to uh, equivocate, I mean, trying well, to uh, equalize what's happening with uh, people on a broader scale, and that's just not fair. And right. people need to remember that really prejudice and, and is different than racism. Structural racism in this country is, it means that you can't escape it. The barbershop might be the only place you can go to escape it, right? right. Um, but that barbershop still has to deal with, do they pay higher taxes? Do they pay more in insurance? Um, right. there, are, there are structural racism that's totally different that most white people are completely unaware of. And so that's, it's, it's not just your individual experiences. And I think if somebody brings to you a situation that's painful or problematic to them, your first reaction should not be, well, you know what happened to me? You know, right. that, you know what I mean? Your first reaction right. should be, how do we fix this? How do I we think, change this? I think people need to open up their ears more. They need to, when they hear these experiences and see them, mm -hmm. they need to believe them. Yes. Why are you discrediting this person? Why, why are what they say isn't true, but what you say is true? That's not fair. Mm -hmm. So they need, to, they need to open their ears and they need to believe them. They need to hear them and they need to believe them. And then they can go do their own research and see that that is true. Yeah. Danielle Rowe, numbers listen, prove it. I wanted to say, first of all, look for her project. It's called Black Utah on Instagram at Danielle Rowe Photography. Please check it out. Danielle, thank you so much for joining us and in explaining your project and, and sharing your life experience. This has been a great conversation. Thank you Thank both. You. I really appreciate it. Thank Join you. Join us again for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. If you have any comments about our show, please contact us via email at voramed at gmail.com or at vorjasonl at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at adonsports and at jasonlee1. Our show's Twitter handle is at vorpodcast. Check out our Facebook page, and you can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or any other place where you might find interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, along with Amy Donaldson, I'm Jason Lee. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of the Loudmouth Project. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.